Are you interested in learning more about how to start your Salesforce career? Be sure to register for our next live webinar showing you exactly how the Salesforce Career Development Program works, our latest statistics, and up-to-date information about what's going on in the Salesforce ecosystem. To register now, head over to talentstacker.com forward slash live. That's talentstacker.com forward slash L-I-V-E. We look forward to seeing you on the next live webinar. It's like when you're dating, you can't seem desperate. And same thing with a job. You, you don't want to seem desperate. You want them to want you. That's like how you make an interview work. I think I'm figuring out why like my dating in college probably went so sideways. It was the desperation. Hi, I'm Anita Smith. I'm Bradley Rice. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the, the Salesforce, Salesforce for Everyone podcast. podcast. In today's episode, find out how to stop imposter syndrome from sabotaging your job search. Don't point out the bad stuff. No one asked for that. You know, just be your own hype man. Also, find out why you shouldn't count yourself out because of a job description. I think the other thing you mentioned was about these job descriptions and really how ridiculous they are. It's like you need all these different things, but it's a wish list. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Salesforce for Everyone podcast. In our last episode, we talked about being better prepared for interviews. We talked about how you can go from doing very simple things like looking up the top 10 questions to your interview. And instead of doing things like that, you can actually tell stories when you're interviewing. You can also get into this rhythm where you're actually guiding the interview instead of it being somebody roasting you or just asking a series of questions that you feel compelled to answer. You can actually turn these interviews into conversations, which is going to make it much more comfortable for you and give you the ability to really compel that interviewer to remember you. In today's episode, we are going to move into why so many people seem to think that there are no Salesforce jobs available. And there are a number of reasons for this. And we're going to make sure to show you exactly why we know there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of jobs available, and exactly how you can find those. With me today to cover these topics, we have Anita Smith. How's it going, Anita? Uh, it's going all right. I'm battling allergies right now. But aside from that, pretty good. How about yourself? I am doing well. I don't have any allergies at the moment, and I'm, I'm hoping to keep it that way. So we'll see if I have any luck. But uh, no, I, I hate to hear that. So hopefully that clears up soon for you. So I think today we're going to talk about all the reasons that I think a lot of people come into the Salesforce ecosystem, and maybe they even get that first certification like we've talked about before, and they still seem to think there aren't any jobs available, or they struggle to find jobs that are a good fit for them. And there are a number of reasons for this, and we see it a lot because we're in you know community groups like Salesforce for Everyone on Facebook, so we get to see everyone talk, and they're constantly bringing up this struggle of... You know, I've applied for a hundred jobs, but I haven't gotten any interviews or I look for jobs on sites like LinkedIn jobs and I don't see any job postings that are for me. So I guess hit me, like, what are your thoughts around why that could be happening? And then I'll try to give some insight from my end. Yeah, I actually just had this conversation earlier today with someone who was saying the same thing, but I had to clear the air and be like, Yes, there are plenty of jobs. Yeah, they're asking for all these qualifications. You just got to ignore that. Because in re reality, if the company does find someone that meets all those qualifications, they're not able to afford those candidates. So I think a lot of people are just like, they're battling that imposter syndrome. They're not realizing 
which jobs they can apply for. They're already like turning the deck, I guess, against them because they see the job qualifications like, oh, I can't do this. I don't know what this is. Oh, they're never going to pick me. So they're already giving up without even starting. I think that is the number one key thing because I there is no shortage. I mean, today alone, I had about 10 different recruiters reach out to me for jobs. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. And I think that's pretty normal for people with more than a year of experience. Of course, as long as they've you know, done the LinkedIn branding that we've talked about in previous episodes and showcasing that value. But you brought up a couple of good points. And that's, I think, number one that stood out to me was people counting themselves out. And if you count yourself out, you can't expect that an employer or a recruiter or someone from HR is going to count you in. Like You have to count yourself in first, and they're going to do a great job of qualifying you and validating you and figuring out if you're a good fit. So let them count you out, but don't count yourself out. And I think the other thing you mentioned was about these job descriptions and really how ridiculous they are. It's like you need two, three, four years experience. You need two or three certifications. You need a background in computer programming and all these different things, but it's a wish list, right? Yeah. And the title will be junior Salesforce admin, which is an entry level position, but yet they ask for all of that. I feel like sometimes recruiters are just like, or whoever creates a job descriptions, they're just copying and pasting other job descriptions they've seen other companies do. I think they are. Like, I think that's what's happening because, I mean, if I were a recruiter and I was just looking to get paid my commissions and I'm trying to put in whatever it is, 60, 70% just to get through the day, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go copy and paste some job posting. And oh, look, I've got another client who needs a Salesforce admin. So I'm just going to paste this one from a little while ago and maybe change a couple lines. But I'm going for an efficiency play. And I think that probably worked pretty well, you know, maybe two or three years ago. But now there's more specific needs. Companies are more aware of exactly what they're looking for. And we have to have a more catered approach. And we have a skill shortage, right? Like, You can't just go out there and expect to find somebody with three years experience constantly. Number one, you don't have the budget because salaries are through the roof. And number two, you're not going to find anyone meeting those criteria because they're already happily employed somewhere else. So you got to cut off the wish list a little bit. I like to compare it to looking for a house. And I think especially the way the housing market's been the last couple of years, people can probably relate. But say you want, I want a 3000 square foot house. I want four bedrooms, three bathrooms. And you know, maybe even a little bit of land on it or whatever else. You've got all these ideas of what you want, but then you show up and the agent shows you a couple of houses and they're all over budget by like 50%. And you realize wanting that house is not a reality. It's the same way with job descriptions. So immediately they have to find a place to cut. Just like as a home buyer, you have to find a place to cut. And the best place to cut for a home buyer is typically either location or square footage. That's where you're going to save the most money is like moving a little further out away from the amenities or cutting the square footage of the home you're buying. With job descriptions, there's one easy way to cut down on the cost of a resource, and that's years of experience. Yeah. And I mean, to add on to that analogy, I see real estate agents, you know, the same as a recruiter. They know what's going on. It's their job to educate the customer or the client what it is out there, because most businesses, they don't know what's going on. They just see like people asking for a ridiculous amount of salaries and seeing that it's hard to find someone. They have no idea like the entire ecosystem, there's a shortage. And they're the ones that write the descriptions, right? So if the recruiter is just taking the job description, trying to find someone like 
it's going to have like those ridiculous qualifications. But if it's a good recruiter, and I'm not a recruiter, I've never been, so I'm not even sure if it's possible if recruiters like talk to the business and be like, hey, this is really unrealistic. You might want to think this over. But I, I mean, I think there's a disconnect there for sure. Yeah, it's probably a really tough conversation to have, right? And they're still in this balance. And I think we're we're still sort of early in this limbo phase where it's so obvious there aren't enough Salesforce professionals with that two to three year experience to fill those jobs. And so I think the recruiters are trying to balance bringing good candidates, but it just moves quickly. The tech space moves quickly. So you just have to be ready to pivot and have some of those hard conversations. And I don't think those hard conversations are happening enough. So we end up in this position where recruiters are still trying to bring qualified talent, but they already have jobs and it's just a really tough situation for everybody, I think. So I think that's what we do at Talent Stacker. It's a big part of what we do is helping people understand you need to go ahead and apply for those jobs that say two to three years experience, even as a beginner, apply for those jobs. Because to me, what happens is you get your name in the hat for their end of the process. You have to think about it like the employer. Say they get 50 applications and you know maybe 40 of those are from people that have two to three years experience. They read the job description and said, okay, I've got it. Maybe five of those are from people who have maybe a year of experience. They're not quite qualified. And then maybe five of those are people like you that have zero experience, maybe a little volunteer experience. Well, what happens is as soon as they talk to those people with two to three years experience, they probably have budgeted maybe $70,000, $80,000 for this role if they're labeling it junior. And then they start offering $80,000 to these people. And they're like, you're kidding, right? Like I'm already making $120K. What are you talking about? And the business realizes really quickly, we have to adjust this job description and go find better candidates. Well, the first thing they do is they say, is there someone who has already applied that we might be able to get for a better price? And if you've already got your name in the hat, then you're on the short list. You might be one of those five they can go select. And instead of them putting up a new job posting and talking to the recruiter and dealing with getting more applications, they just talk to the five people, you're one of them, and all of a sudden you're at the top of the list. So it's a great position to be in if you know how to play the game. Yeah, it just it lengthens the process because it's slowly training the company that, oh, okay, I'm not going to be able to get someone with this giant wish list for the price I want. I mean, I was on a call with a recruiter the other day. I, I don't have that much experience. I have a little over a year, but we, you know, we had a good talk and I finally asked like what their budgeted salary range was and the number they gave me I, I believe it was like 74,000. I had to like keep my poker face. But then I was like, hey, I got to be honest with you. I talked to a lot of people in the industry and entry level, people are getting on average 72,000 already. I'm already in the six figure range. So if you are seeing that you're having trouble hiring people, this could be the reason why. Yeah. And I, I talk to a lot of companies just being in the position of working with companies and trying to bridge that gap between entry-level professionals and companies that are hiring employees. You know, I try to get in between that conversation so that they understand more about what's happening in the ecosystem, but I get a lot of pushback, right? And, that, and I try to read the room. I come in and go, oh, well, what are you doing to try to get qualified talent quickly? And what are you doing to try to retain that qualified talent? And the truth is some companies are doing really cool things. They're doing things like six-month raises, 10-month raises to try to get ahead of the curve. Some people are doing things like offering really high entry-level salaries, uh, like maybe $100,000 for an entry-level job to try to retain them for a year or two so that they don't have to deal with turnover because turnover is expensive. It's time-consuming. 
a lot of people are involved and it's really frustrating for your internal resources because they have to pick up the slack for whoever left. And there are a ton of reasons, but I will say the number one pushback I get is companies saying, I don't feel like chasing people with money. And that to me is, I'm not sure what to say back to you other than we might be in a time period right now where you have to chase resources with money. And I'm not saying forever, but we're going through a massive skill shortage where people want to get what they're worth and you might need to do it just for the next year until things slow down a little bit in this great resignation time period that we're in. I mean, yeah, that or have a really unique benefit. I, I'm seeing some crazy benefits that I've never seen before. We're like 100% coverage for health insurance. I'm seeing more and more unlimited time off, which that's a whole nother topic on how to process and calculate that. And that's even real. Some other cool ones I've seen are like annual pass to a national park, <laughs> a lot of like events. I, one that piqued my interest that was uh, local to me was a, a crawfish boil <laughs> that they had for the, the company, which I was like, oh, maybe. But then it was a hybrid one. So I, <laughs> <laughs> so instantly off the list, I'm not going back in office. Sorry. So all you companies listening out there, the crawfish boils are where it's at. Like if you can offer that as a benefit, you've got employees for life. Okay, perfect. <laughs> I think another piece to this is, you know, I think the concept or the topic of this episode is all about this false belief that there are no jobs available, this myth that there are no jobs available and how that happens. And I think another big one is people thinking that just having a certification entitles them to a job. And I, I even see people saying, I don't see why I need a certification. You should train me on the job. And so, yeah, if you don't mind sharing your thoughts around why having that certification just isn't quite enough, because to me, that's probably the biggest misunderstanding is people think I'll get on trailhead, I'll get certified, therefore I'm qualified and people should offer me jobs. Yeah, passing the exam and doing the actual job, it's two different things. Like even I was, I like, I know this and it's like that in a lot of industries. But even when I started work, I was like, okay, this is way different than the exam. I'm happy I did a volunteer project because I had that hands-on experience, but it's not something you, you can't just go into someone's Salesforce org without like knowing anything. There's a lot of stuff you can really mess up in there. So yeah, the certification is great. And it's like, it should be a minimum qualification, but you really need hands-on experience. There's so many little things that could go wrong that you don't want to do that like in an actual customer's org. Yeah. And I think if we like bring it back to the, the actual stats of it, and if you listen to anything I talk about at all, you know, I, I just love analytics. And the way the stats break down are that 70% of Salesforce job applicants have at least one certification, 70%. So by not having a certification, you've already put yourself in the bottom 30%. By having a certification, all you've really done is put yourself in the top 70%. So you're still part of this massive pack of applications, right? So we have to differentiate ourselves. And historically, people have said, oh, we'll just go get another certification. But employers are learning that certifications don't make you qualified to do a job. And that Sometimes, you know, people cheat to get certifications or they're just really good test takers, but they're not great at actually being an employee or communicating and all the soft skills that come along with it. So a talent stacker, I think that's what we've, I don't want to say perfected, but we're darn good at it. And it's everything in between 
certification in landing the job. Cause I think there's a lot of people out there that can teach you to get a certification and you can go on trailhead and you could probably trip and fall and figure it out, but it's everything else. So you mentioned getting hands-on experience and that's a huge part of it for sure. And there's so much more that goes into it. And I think it's everything we've talked about in this podcast up to this point. It's your personal branding and getting in front of the recruiters and hiring managers. It's like you mentioned, the hands-on experience, it's interview prep and actually being able to hold down a conversation for half an hour in order to showcase your skills. Yes. It's your soft skills, like being able to have a conversation, ask the right questions, act appropriately, like in front of an audience, in front of like clients. It's all of that. And, you know, the the certification doesn't cover that part. There's so many different scenarios where like there's certain people skills or soft skills that aren't taught. I mean, we it comes up quite a bit in Town Stacker in our private group on how like to act in this situation. And that's not something you can be taught. You just like know that by talking to other people and like getting suggestions on how they handle the situation. But it, it's so much more. I mean, it, it's also like just being likable and being able to work with someone. Yeah, you could be super smart. But if you're like overconfident, you know, not a pleasant person to work with, no one's going to want to hire you because even though you can do all these amazing things with the org, like if you're like annoying or demanding, it's not helpful. Like if you're hard to work with, it doesn't matter how smart you are. No one's going to want to hire you. It's true. Like we refer to it. I remember when when we would hire a consultancy is uh, we called it the airplane test. And it was this idea that if you got sat down on an airplane next to somebody and there's no Wi-Fi and you can't put on headphones and you got to sit here and talk to this person beside you. Could you do that for an entire flight and reasonably enjoy that conversation? And you need to be able to say yes about yourself. And that doesn't mean it's comfortable, but it means you can pull off a conversation talking to someone else, because if you can't pull that off, then you got to get through that. You're probably going to do two hours of interviews at a lot of companies. You're going to do three rounds of interviews, four rounds of interviews. They're going to talk to you for a couple of hours. And you've got to be able to pull that off consistently because if they're sitting there going, you know what, they have three certifications. They've got a, you know two, three months of volunteer experience. I just can't imagine 40 hours a week with that person showing up to every meeting I have to do internally. Like I just, I want to keep looking. I don't want to hire that person. And that's what you're up against. And it's a small part of it, right? Like you also need to be able to talk about why you're valuable. And I think going back to what you mentioned earlier, imposter syndrome, I think we come in sort of, again, counting ourselves out. We come in saying, well, I don't have that much experience, but here's what I've done. And we use these little mitigating almost pretexts to our answers. It's like, Tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I just got certified last week. And it's like, stop it. Oh, yeah. Don't point out the bad stuff. No one asked for that. No one said, like, you have to point that stuff out. You know, just be your own hype man. Like, pretend you're like your best friend is applying for this job and interviewing. How would you talk about that person? Like, it makes me cringe every time someone like does that. Like, no. I've even started talking to people about conversing, like having these conversations and communicating it in a way like you're looking for your next opportunity. You know, I'm ready for a challenge. I'm ready for a change. I'm ready for, you know, that next opportunity because we almost come in saying, just give me my first chance. Just give me my first opportunity. And it almost creates a cloud over us where if a we desperation, could, it's like right. when you're dating, you can't seem desperate. And same thing with a job. You, you don't want to seem desperate. 
you want them to want you. That's like how you make an interview work. I think I'm figuring out why like my dating in college probably went so sideways. It was the <laughs> desperation. Uh, <laughs> this is my first time. No. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I, th that's exactly it. It's being able to walk in the room. And I think that gives you a little confidence, especially if you can mentally reframe like a volunteer project as a job. Like that was a job that I had, a project that I did. I have experience. Now I'm looking for my next opportunity. And if you can reframe it like that and talk in that way, I think it gives you a huge edge where they they start to really respect what you've got on your resume, even if it's just a couple of months, they start to really respect that experience because you respect it. And that's such a key point you pointed out because I didn't even realize I was doing that right now. So I, I have like a great job right now. But like I said before, recruiters keep reaching out to me. So I will respond back, hey, I'm currently on a project. I'm really happy where I'm at. So I'm not really interested. And most go away. But then some still a handful still try to like recruit me and still want to jump on a call. So I jump on the call. And I, I can feel that I'm the difference between a year ago when I was applying for my first job. And now <laughs> I do have a lot more confidence. And especially since like, I'm not hungry for my, my second job, and I'm happy where I'm at, like the interview is like, so easy. It's like, they're just trying to woo me and get me to like, join their team. Yeah, right. Ex exactly. And that's what everybody is really looking for. Like those recruiters are hungry because there's a, again, we keep coming back to this. There's a massive talent shortage and you having a year of experience makes you, you know, probably top 5% of people who are actually open to looking for other positions in the world, like in the world, you are top 5%. So you are on a short list of Anita actually expressed to me that she was interested and might be open to her next opportunity. That's huge for a recruiter. Oh, they got to get the it's sale. It's like the friend zone. <laughs> They're I just like, like maybe if I just waited out. That's Actually, right. the person I spoke to last year, I don't, I don't think they remembered, but I was looking back at our chat history. They did reach out to me, I think last summer, and then reached out again. So that happens too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Anita, what other things... Would you say job seekers could do to level up their job search? So another thing I see people do wrong when they're job searching is they will only search in their location, which I guess maybe people think that they have to be located in an area to work in that area or in the same state or city. That is not the case for the Salesforce ecosystem. I want to say like 90% of the jobs out there are remote. So even if you live in Florida, you can apply for jobs in California if it's a remote position. Don't let that hold yourself back. So when you're searching, don't put your city and state. You can even put like remote or I don't know if there are any other options you can put uh, or just United States if you're living in the US. Yeah, I think that's it. And it's a really good point because I think it's because these search tools are designed in this way where you feel compelled to like put in your zip code and you know, tell us where you live and then select a radius and all these things. And it's just not important at all. And I think some people would go, oh, but if I live in Florida and I work in California, then what about the time change? And it's like, yeah, you might have to adapt to a time change. And so figure out what's comfortable for you. Maybe if you work in, you know, live in the Eastern time zone, you might be okay with one hour difference and looking for everything. But even that takes you all the way up the central time zone and the Eastern time. Like, 
that's a massive amount of area to search for jobs. And there are so many jobs available, but especially for people on the West Coast who are looking for jobs, you know, headed east, it's like you just get up a little bit earlier in the morning and you get off a little bit earlier in the day. It's really kind of nice for a lot of people to maybe start work at 6 a.m. and finish up at three. It's not a bad schedule. So you're spot on. We have to start looking at this and applying for jobs. And I think it's that imposter syndrome again, where it's like, oh, I live over here. So this probably won't work, huh? And it's like, stop thinking of it like that. No way. Turn it into a positive, you know? Like I'm in central time right now. My clients are in Pacific time and it's kind of nice because I get to sleep in if I want to. My my first meeting doesn't start to like 10 a.m. So, I mean, just turn it into a positive. You know, if you're a morning person, then go for those East Coast jobs. Like I must say, it's really nice to to have the flexibility. And you don't always necessarily have to work outside of your time zone, even if your clients are like every company is different. Some people, the companies make them work in their time zone that they're actually living in. Others make them adapt to other customers. But I mean, it's really not that big of a difference. Yeah. So bottom line is, regardless of where you live, you need to be applying for jobs nationwide. You really need to be looking bigger than just the town you live in or within a 50 mile radius. And if you feel more comfortable looking for jobs around you because you feel like that might be a connection, okay, fine. But you need to continue to be applying for jobs regularly. So you need to keep expanding that radius so you constantly have new jobs to apply for. And I think that brings us to another conversation of how many jobs should we be applying for and how often should we be expecting interviews in order to say, okay, I think we're doing the right things. Because if you apply for 100 jobs and you don't get a single interview, okay, it's time to rethink what you're doing. But I think a lot of people have a misconception or just don't quite understand, you know, how often should I be expecting an interview when I'm applying for jobs? So what do you think, Anita? I can't tell you the amount of times people have come to me and asked, you know, what's wrong? I've been applying to so many jobs. I'm not getting any interviews. And then when I go to ask them, okay, how many jobs have you applied to? It's like 20, 30. And in my head, I'm like, where do you get such like high expectations that if you only apply to 20 jobs, what you expect to hear, like what, 50% half of them back? That's just not realistic. I mean, it's a numbers game. It's like dating on Tinder when you you just got to swipe right on. Well, if you're a guy, if you're a girl, don't swipe right on everyone. But if you're a guy, you just got to swipe right playing that numbers game until someone like picks you. Same thing with applying to jobs. Like you need to apply to like hundreds of jobs to get those interviews just because you're, you know, there are a lot of jobs out there. There are a lot of people searching for jobs. So, I mean, if you're applying to a bunch of jobs, other people are applying to it after a certain threshold, the recruiter is going to stop accepting applications. So you got to move on to the next one and the next one and the next one. So don't just apply to 20 or 30 and feel like that's enough. The number is way higher. I think you're exactly right. And I would say as a percentage, and you can say whether or not you agree, but I would say maybe you apply for 20 jobs. I would expect out of that at least an interview at a minimum. Like if you're not getting an interview when you apply for 20 jobs, I would probably rethink your strategy a little bit. And we'll talk about that in a second. If you're getting two to three interviews out of 20 job applications, I would say you're probably working in a pretty good cadence at that point. And I would continue forward. You're doing a lot of the right things. If you're getting, you know, 10%, you're getting interviews for, I think that's pretty good. What What do you think? Yeah. I mean, so there's another strategy to job search. If you have a niche 
background, you should definitely leverage that. Like if you're coming from one of these like hot industries, like healthcare, financial services, definitely look for those type of roles that ask for that type of background because it's a really good spot to be in because you come from that same background and they have clients that are in that background. One, you speak the language of that industry. And then two, you also speak the language of Salesforce. So you're the translator and that's rare. That's something you could really leverage to to get far in the interview process. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I think latching onto that, you know, industry backgrounds, if you, and this isn't to say it's not possible for you because it's possible for everyone. I mean, that's why the name of this podcast is Salesforce for Everyone. But to Anita's point, if you've got that background where it's healthcare, it's financial services, maybe billing, accounting, teaching, education is big. Nonprofit backgrounds are very meaningful in the Salesforce space. Military veterans, obviously, if you have a technology background, even if it's not Salesforce, that's huge. Project management, if Agile and Scrum mean anything to you, those are things that you can bring into the space. But if you heard all of those and you're like, none of those apply to me, that's okay. We have so many people from completely unrelated to technical jobs transitioning into Salesforce careers. So it's possible for everyone, but you're definitely going to have a leg up if you come from one of those backgrounds. So I think that's a really good point. And you should focus on jobs um, and you can get a higher percentage, right? You might get 50% of you know interview to application ratio if you are applying for jobs that make sense for your industry background. So hopefully that makes sense. So I know we threw a lot of information out to you. I just wanted to recap it really quick. So number one, apply to jobs, even though you don't think you're qualified. I mean, if you can match like what, 50% of their wish list, go for it 100%. Because think about all the other people who are not going for it, because they talk themselves out of it. Number two, apply outside of your own zip code, city, state, because There are remote jobs everywhere, so it's not an issue. If you want to work in a different state, you can. Apply to more jobs, like in the hundreds, so you get the numbers out there. And then if you have a niche background in a specific industry, definitely focus on that because that's where you're going to increase your chances of getting an interview and getting hired. In addition to those four items, I just remembered there is a fifth bonus thing. And this is what happened to me. I got my job through the hidden job market. So I want to say there's about 30% of the people that land jobs, land jobs that have never been posted on any job website. These are hidden jobs that you find through your network. And Bradley can tell you a little bit more about how to find out how to navigate this hidden job market. Yeah, it's sort of a phrase that was coined. I think it was... Akila Das, who sort of came up with this. She's one of our alumni. And we had heard about people landing jobs through a LinkedIn post or a quick message with somebody on LinkedIn or something like that. And we thought, well, those are probably isolated events. So what we did is we surveyed all of our jobs landed. So you're talking about three or 400 people from last year. And we said, you know, how did you get your job? Was it a job description that you applied for a job for? How did that work? And it turned out that, you know, you're spot on. It was about 30% of those individuals did not apply for the job that they landed. And I think for a lot of people, it's like, whoa, that's not isolated. That's a huge percentage. Like it can make that big of a difference for me to be doing things outside of just applying for jobs. And then I think it becomes... Well, if you're not applying for jobs, how on earth did you get the job? How did you get an interview? How did these things happen? 
And a lot of it has to do with your networking and personal branding. And just like you mentioned, we're going to have a bonus free resource for you. So it's going to be a job search strategy guide. And this is really going to be your keep it by your side while you're applying for jobs. Make sure you're following the steps. And this is going to give you a much better chance of, yeah, landing that 70% of actually applying for jobs, but also making sure you're taking advantage of the hidden job market. So let's get into the steps of actually applying for a job. So what most people do, they go on LinkedIn or any job application site, they find a job, and then just click the easy apply button, which is good. I mean, it's a good way to play the numbers game. But remember, you have to differentiate yourself because there's so many other people doing that. You got to like take an extra step. What I would do, I would one like stalk the company, follow their LinkedIn page. When you are on their LinkedIn page, you can actually see a list of employees I would try to find like an HR person, a recruiter person, also someone who's on the team you're trying to apply for and just try to like send them a message and reach out like, hey, I'm really interested in this or talk to the recruiter. They'll be happy to talk to you because recruiters, they spend most of their time trying to like search for candidates. It's so nice when one comes to them, you know, so that's another way to stand out. Um, What are some others? you have Bradley? Yeah, I think that's a a lot of the same things. I Like if I were applying for a job right now, I sort of love playing the game of seeing how I can leverage different situations to really increase my percent chances. Like I think, like you said, you can play the numbers game of just mass applying, just quick apply, quick apply, quick apply. The odds of you getting to the top of the stack are small, especially as an entry-level Salesforce professional. So how do we really, you know, crank that forward and get closer to that 10, 20, 30%, you know, interviews. And there are a lot of little things you can do. So like you said, uh, LinkedIn is a huge piece of this. So you apply for a job. Sure. You get your name in the stack. If you know who the recruiter is, or you know who might be hiring, you might send a message. Like you said, you could go to the company page on LinkedIn. And a lot of people think this doesn't matter, but company pages get very few follows. So if you follow that company page, number one, that means something to them. Number two, go look at a couple of the posts. Sometimes people will, or companies will post as the company and you can go look at their posts and make sure to comment like that because they're once again, getting no comments and no likes on their posts. And I forgot to add also, this goes hand in hand with your LinkedIn branding. Look at your mutual connections to see if you already know someone who works there, because a lot of times people love to refer you because they get a kickback on their end, you know, and I, I think it's like, what, $500, a thousand is not like, that's pretty common in this industry. So yeah, reach out to your your buddy or your connection or a friend of a friend and ask them like, hey, I'm interested. I just uh, apply to this. You know, how do you like working? I mean, don't go ahead and like go into it. Hey, like I need a job, you know, warm them up a bit. But still have that end goal in mind, like, okay, I know someone and they could possibly refer me to this company. Yeah, it's an extremely valid point. And I hope people don't sort of think, well, eh, yeah, that's probably one of those little one-off situations. And it's not at all. This is how the hidden job market works. This is how applying for jobs normally works. And you can't just be a resume in the stack. So many people are like, oh, I'm just, I just feel like a number. And it's like, then don't be a number, like do something about it. And this is what you can do. To your point, you might have a connection already and don't reach out and say, hey, I need a job. Reach out and say, hey, I saw your company's hiring. I think I'm really qualified for this job for these two or three reasons. 
you know, I don't know if you get a kickback for referring and maybe it's a little early. Maybe you bridge the conversation first and say, Hey, I don't know if you guys give kickbacks or whatever, but you know, I think I'm a really good fit for this. And if you put in a referral, you know, you could get paid too. So that, that'd be cool. So there's a lot of small things you can do. I think the other thing is, especially if you're working through a recruiter or you notice that a certain recruiter is working with a lot of companies and they're typically all in the Salesforce space. It's not like they recruit in all these different technologies. Typically, Salesforce recruiters recruit for only Salesforce jobs. So what you can do is even if they post developer jobs or these really technical advanced jobs, you can share those with your LinkedIn profile and say like, hey, this recruiter is amazing. You know, if you're looking for a job, I'm sharing this for my network. And that makes that recruiter like you a little more. So when those entry level jobs do come up, you might find out before they ever post about it because they're like, hey, I remember you were looking for an entry level job. You still looking for it? And now you're already in the front of the line because you're it's you're not really doing anything special. I would say most of these strategies you'll find are actually just about being kind to other people actually showing interest in things that help other people and actively just trying to benefit your community. And if you do those things, it turns out it gives back to you. It's really not a secret. It's just about actively engaging and being generous with your community. Yep. Circling back to that building, that human connection, being someone they they like to talk to. I recall this is a pro pro tip. If you want to get really get on a like recruiter's good side, go to their LinkedIn page and give them a recommendation. And they're like, hey, I worked with this person. Um, even if you didn't get a job, it's like, I really enjoyed it. You know, they're really good at following up. I either landed a job because of them or I, I didn't, but like they've been a pleasure to work with. Simple. Yeah, it's huge. So many small things and you'll find that you're simply giving back to other people and just, you know, putting them on a pedestal, which is really nice. So I know we've shared a lot of information it's a lot of stuff to memorize. Don't worry, you don't have to memorize it. Just go online. We'll have a nice little PDF ready for you. Just follow these step-by-step guides and you'll be all set. So we have brought you through the entire process. If you've been listening, if you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe. Why not? <laughs> We've had a bunch of great episodes. You don't want to miss this next one. So you've gone through the interview process and you finally have an offer or you have multiple offers. We're going to talk about how to evaluate those offers. And you're thinking, oh, yeah, I'm just going to instantly say yes. I mean, that's what I did. But in hindsight, I probably shouldn't have done that. And we'll tell you why. So thank you so much for listening and have a great day. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us today. To get started for free on your own Salesforce career, go to talentstacker.com forward slash start or check the show notes. There you'll find all the resources you need to start earning 60 to 80,000 in as little as eight months, no matter your education or career background. The Salesforce for Everyone podcast was produced by Edmund T and engineered by Andrew Mendonca. If you like what we do at this Scrappy Can Do podcast, please help others find us by leaving a five-star rating and a great review on whichever platform you're listening to us right now. See you next time.